It's the Loose Filter Podcast with your hosts, Stuart Sims and Anthony Campolo. And we have a really fun episode for you this week uh, called The Glory of Outsider Music. And this uh, may be something you are may or may not be familiar with, but even if you are familiar, I think our list of artists and, and tracks is kind of wildly eclectic enough uh, that you will definitely find something fun and, and new in this, uh, this overview of a really distinctively American sort of tradition. Uh, but before we dive into that, I wanted to just uh, see how you're doing, Anthony. How you doing? I'm doing great, actually. Doing I'm, great. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to talk about these weirdo outsiders. This is this will be this episode is uh, our first December episode. It will be the uh, fourth of our weekly posts of episodes, which we will be keeping up uh, well for as long as as long as folks are listening indefinitely until we run out of music. Of course, when we talk about all the music there is, once we finish the music, yeah, then we'll 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 be done. Which I you know I figure we got what you know uh, 30 40 weeks worth of episodes before we get through all the music so we're here at least for a year you know uh and people don't make much new so we'll cover it all pretty i, pretty I know a guy who makes music you know a guy at, at uh, least one <laughs> uh so so anything uh anything been going on in the world uh generally musically you think germane to our our conversation here our our podcast or this topic in the world no, of music, not that no, I know. No, 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 I, know yeah, I, I don't really follow like the the music news as much as I used to. I used to be so on top of that stuff. But. I know it's too. Well, it's just it's a, a rising flood, you know. It, it has been for it's it's peak everything uh, because there's there's so much and it's all accessible. I am excited so. though for all of the end of the year lists that we're about to get. The filters. Yeah, it's it's nice to like just have the less listen loose to filters. these ten albums. <laughs> And then you like know what was important. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, and also to, to keep up kind of a, a touch base with the, the different uh, musical styles or, or or even mediums. Like if I, I like movies, but I'm not super into them. Right. It's mm-hmm. a way to just keep up with what the is among the best of the previous yeah, year and at what least. the you know culturati are talking about. Right. Like my joke earlier. Sometimes you don't want the the loose filter. You want, you want a good good tight filter that only lets the good stuff through. Uh, so in that sense, hopefully we're not, we're not loose, uh, about quality or interest. Uh, I did want to mention that we want to encourage, uh, everybody listening, uh, to send us feedback. If you have it, uh, loosefilter at, uh, uh, gmail.com is the email address. If there's something you want us to talk about topic or artist or anything, we'll dive into it. Or if we cover a topic or uh, style, or or and we leave something or, or or things out that you think are important, we're certainly willing to and, and ready to circle back around on anything and include uh, what we may have overlooked or inadvertently neglected. Addendums. Yeah, absolutely. Or part twos or threes or fours. Uh, obviously, because this episode's following history of punk part three, which wasn't actually addendums. It was. It was three part all it's kind along. Of adjacent, I think. Adjacent. They were adjacent. But yeah, loosefilter at gmail.com or on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash loosefilter or uh, my own Twitter feed slash Stuart Sims. Um, you could just send us messages, tweet at us. Uh, and as always, you can find our content on loosefilter.com or soundcloud.com slash loosefilter. So our episode this week is The Glory of Outsider Music, and it is a uh, 
tradition, I guess. I, I This is not a genre or a style of yeah, the music. The question is, what makes someone an outsider right. versus an I, insider? I would say that this grouping of music and musical activity uh, and, and genre, if you will, um, is put together. It's all put in the same bucket by the nature of the activity, not the sounds themselves, the kind of music it is, or or it's not a stylistic genre so much yeah. as it is a, a category of how musicians are working within like how they frame it as either a career or not a career they're kind of like amateurs in a sense right yes and it's also uh artists generally because the term outsider art is more broad than just music but we're looking at the music is that the particular creative medium because music is a medium is we've talked about this before uh is temporal it exists in time and it often takes more than one person or a lot of coordination even if it's just one person to literally render the thing to make it real to perform the music and it's required a lot of then gatekeepers to capture the music yeah and and transmit and so forth so it's not like other creative media like visual art, for instance, or or where where there is a reliance in music on formal technique and formal knowledge and understanding, kind of just to make it all work in a basic sense. Yeah, high level of craft. Yeah. Before, you can't just sit in a room for a few years and figure out your own visual language as a painter. The equivalent of that as a musician is that you come out with sounds that may be just so completely alien and nonsensical to people that you never can communicate. Uh, and so I guess you could run that risk in any medium. But but in music, there is this group of musicians, of artists, who despite not having uh, any formal training or access or, or perhaps inclination to formal training, knowledge, understanding, skill, uh, had an intense desire and passion to make music nevertheless. And through some really combination of luck or accident was in a situation that allowed them to capture that music and then a small kind of community of people to find it and sort of bond over it. Is, is That's a pattern I saw with a lot of these artists. I also love this kind of group of musical artists because it is though these kind of artists exist in any culture uh, and have always existed in any culture, it is something that is quintessentially American in the sense that the United States is a young country and our artists in so many media have been just brash and kind of uneducated and or inventive and and just disregarding convention. And that's kind of just a tradition. The kind of, the kind of tinkering tradition of yeah. just get access to the tools no matter how basic they are. And start doing the thing. And make and, stuff. And make, make, a stuff. Lo- make it a little better each time you do it. Yeah. And if you don't like the way it works, open it up and <laughs> make it work different. <laughs> but in in the the kind of concert music world, this has a long tradition back into the 1800s, starting with composers like Charles Ives and Henry Cowell. We call them the American Mavericks is the, the sort of popular term. San Francisco Symphony published a book that had that title, but the uh, American iconoclasts, you hear them, composed like John Cage, I mean, you know, Harry Parch, really distinctive, uh, uh, high-level composers who were even part philosophers and how they deconstructed music as a practice and yeah, composition. They, they wanted to carve out their own language even. Yeah, and so we, you know, we have generations of this tradition in American art making, 
And so outsider artists, to me, are not outsider at all in that sense, because the spirit of just, you know, I don't care if I don't know anything about it. I'm going to sculpt a hundred foot tall iron transformer and, you know, figure it out as I go. Uh, while not uniquely American at all, certainly is distinctively a characteristic for good or bad of, uh, American culture. And so this sort of stream in our musical, uh, culture, I love. So, okay, enough of our rambling. Here's a little bit of a focused definition. The, the person who did the work here in identifying, uh, kind of naming, defining, and, and collecting a lot of this, uh, what we would, what I would call from the academic perspective, the ethnomusicological research and, and writing is a DJ, uh, somebody who worked in the realm of popular music named, uh, Erwin Chusid. Uh, and he, uh, published a book and released a collection of recordings in starting in 1996, but in 2000, he published a book, but he coined the term outsider music and really gave us our formal working definition of the term. So here's what he said. I just, if I may quote, uh, this is Chusid's uh, writing summarizing the concept of what is uh, an outsider musician. There are countless, and this is the quote now, there are countless unintentional renegades, performers who lack an overt self-consciousness about their art. As far as they're concerned, what they're doing is normal. And despite paltry incomes and dismal record sales, they're happy to be in the same line of work as Celine Dion and Andrew Lloyd Webber. Their vocals sound melodically adrift. Their rhythms stumble. They seem harmonically without anchor. Their instrumental proficiency may come across as uh, may come across, sorry, as laughably incompetent. They get little or no commercial radio exposure. Their followings are limited, and they have roughly the same likelihood of attaining mainstream success that a possum has of skittering safely across a six-lane freeway. These outsiders, for the most part, lack self-awareness. They don't boldly break the rules because they don't know there are rules. Listening to that, they just sound so much like the precursors to everything we see on the internet of just the idea of you can put anything you want out there and you don't even have to think about how people are going to react to it just because the very act of being able to do it. And people found that really endearing, I think, in a lot of these artists. And it, you can kind of see the first seeds of this whole new amateur art making culture um, appearing. And a whole, and, and in a culture that is and so rapidly became uh, image focused <laughs> and, and, and became so aware and proficient at how you can use and manipulate appearances and, and so While forth. While people so badly want authenticity, quote unquote, from their artists. <laughs> Exactly. These guys have an authenticity that can't be faked. And it can't be fake because they don't even know they have it. Yeah, <laughs> they man. don't even know authenticity is a thing to have, right? I mean, this is how little... They wouldn't know how to sell out even if they were offered right. the money. And that's where the a genuineness, uh, that's where you a real authenticity. They don't know what they don't know. Naive in that sense. The German poet uh, Friedrich Schiller, a couple hundred years ago, wrote an essay and he talked about on the naive and the sentimental in art. Uh, the American composer John Adams wrote a symphony in 1999 called Naive and Sentimental Music, and he wrote a great uh, essay about this uh, uh, idea and about his symphony. And in music, he uh, uh, kind of brings this idea to life, but that there are, broadly speaking, two kinds of artists. 
there are naive artists, like these outsider artists who just make a thing for the joy of making it and for having the thing exist because it was in their imagination or their feelings or their spirit or and they wanted to put it out in the world for the love of the medium itself and making a thing in that medium. Uh, and they don't know uh, not only that there are rules, but they don't know their traditions or styles. They don't know where they fit in. They don't care. <laughs> That's not the point. That's not where they're coming from. And then Broadly speaking, there are, you're like in music who would be formally trained, who would know the history of the medium or the sentimental artists. And who are creating a cathedral out of sound, the way they build things. Yeah, or even, you know, you could be, you could be a rock musician, but it would be a musician who, you know, is, is skilled and, and, and knowledgeable. Things of a level of complexity above. And also knows the history of the medium, maybe uh production and recorded music or rock as a genre and who who the great songwriters, performers, whatever are, maybe like the Ramones on one end and the Clash on the other. And where are you? fit in right that would be a sentimental thing in that description but having no idea of what punk even means even though you make music that a lot of people would describe as punk now that's naive (laughs) because you you just picked a guitar off of the wall and started hitting it (laughs) until it's you could make it make sounds that you liked and could work with um so so that's kind of what we're talking about now this is uh i mean certainly outsider music has existed forever ever since there are, there have been people <laughs> making music, it's really sound reproduction and networks that allow you to exchange music in any way, even radio and record stores, you know, that what we're talking about, the kind of musical artist we're talking about uh, could come to be. In- yeah, there needs to be some sort of network that allows this music to be shared and talked about and to be remembered that now later on we would even know to listen to it. And again, music as a medium, to be totally naive as a musician means that you're probably uh, illiterate in the sense that music notation is not in your skill set. So whatever music right. you're creating, you have to be able to capture it immediately. Yeah, you can't write you it can't down. You can't reify it in a way that could be transmitted to another musician to create. You're, you're exactly. the only one who could even make that, what you're making. And so that's why we're not talking about Charles Ives or Henry Cowell or John Cage or Harry Parch because they are outsider musicians. I think they absolutely would fall under a big part of this categorization. Like outsider composers, you can maybe outsider, call them. But, but yeah, because of the, the complexity of their understanding and their craft, because you had to write it down. Now, a lot of them didn't have the option of recording anything. It was, you know, the technology wasn't at least certainly in common use. But uh, but when we get into the realm of recorded music is where we really hear these artists coming out. Uh, sorry about that. Um, so why? Why do we want to listen to this? What's interesting about them? I mean, there's a novelty value and the music sounds, it falls into this kind of uncanny valley where it almost sounds like quote unquote real music like it doesn't organize maybe in the way we would expect a lot of times or it's not right in the ways we would so up beyond its novelty value why listen to it for me what i found interesting is the question of what did people find interesting about these things because i think a lot of these artists they people were so baffled by the the artifact itself that they they just had this question of who who could have made this? What was the context this could have been created under? Like what what's what was their even point of reference to to have gotten here? Because these things these things just kind of pop up out of nowhere. So most of the examples we have are so 
idiosyncratic or unique or uh, even iconoclastic, depending on whether they were or weren't influential. Yeah. So there's that maybe, you know, astonishment factor. Like, yeah, and just a curiosity. What even is yeah. this? Uh-huh. I, I, I don't even, I've never heard anything like this, and I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> I'm just sort of. What's the urtext? <laughs> There's a joke about three people listening are going to get, but they're going to think it's really funny, Anthony. Uh, narrow but deep. So that's the first, a, a real genuineness. There's a real genuineness, a real authenticity. There's a real uniqueness in uh, the the sounds themselves, the craft, the way it's rendered. Like what? The sound worlds. They're, they are distinctive because these folks are coming from nowhere. Their, their own personal world and experience of life. Yeah, and because of that, it has it has a real human stamp to it. Like the you can tell the the person who had their hands on the work to really have to make it that they they some of them you know imagine they probably struggled to make this work in a certain sense. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and I mean, it took. I mean, it's obvious. It, all of all of the things we're going to listen to took a lot of work. Mm-hmm. So whether or not you think they they have value or or what, it, it, it's not just a thing that somebody made as a joke or, or thoughtlessly this these are all passion projects yeah, and it really bring, we'll brings to the question like what is art for itself you know right and and that's where in music we only very recently got to a place where you truly could make a complete thing for the joy of making it for no other value external value, even if it never found an audience if you made the recording you made the thing it's there and that has its own joy and satisfaction <sighs> Just making the thing is its own reward and value in most of the cases. Um, I also wanted to mention before we dive into, we got uh, 15 artists here and and 19 or 18 or 19 tracks that we got for you. Uh, This is not like a best of or anything, an intro to or a survey, comprehensive survey of any kind. Uh, and, And even a lot of these artists don't have influence some do have a lot of influence but uh most of them have minimal uh influence and some are still really pretty obscure don't have much of an audience but there is when we listen to each one we'll talk about what we hear that is interesting and and uh you know a value and 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 of of, and there and there were definitely there were a handful of these that i had already come across just sort of through looking i was always into weird music so these have I've come across a couple of these artists just in the past and they, they do stick with you. Like <laughs> Jan deck, we'll get to like, that is something I'll never forget listening to. That's for sure. So, uh, outsider music, music created by self-taught or naive musicians. Uh, it's t- usually applied this term, uh, to those who exist outside of the music establish- establishment or exhibit childlike qualities. And especially those who suffer from intellectual disabilities or mental illnesses. We have a couple of artists on our list who struggle with uh, mental illness, and that does um, affect the kind of uh, music that they imagine. Diving into our listening, the first artist that uh, we want to share with you is the quintessential Florence Foster Jenkins, well-known now because of the movie uh, where Meryl Streep played Uh, Florence Foster Jenkins, and famously was a woman through the first half of the 20th century who fancied herself a fabulous soprano who was on, unfortunately, the uh, left side, if you will, of the Dunning-Kruger curve, where she was so bad at music that uh, it, it 
severely inhibited her ability to tell how bad at music she actually was. But because she had a lot of money, she paid for concerts and and financed her own career. And toward the end of her career, recorded an album, uh, uh, went into a studio in 1944, uh, uh, and, and this is the last year she sang publicly. And by that point, she had become such a folk legend that her final recital was completely sold out and you couldn't get a ticket. And so this is uh, Florence Foster Jenkins, uh, a woman with no training <laughs> or apparently experience in music, singing Mozart's uh, famous aria, The Queen of the Night. So why did we start there, Anthony? Like you said, she sold out one of her last concerts, right? She had a, a huge following. So I think it, it shows how America loves our endearing weirdos. This kind of reminds me of a story of... Have you ever heard of Emperor Norton in San Francisco? No. This is a great story. He was a guy who, around the mid-1800s, walked around San Francisco. I have heard of this person. And just declared himself emperor. He he would make commandments to, to Congress and he he acted as if he was the emperor. And people deferred to him as if he was emperor, like when he would enter buildings and stuff. And when he when he died, he had like a procession and thousands of people came out to it. And it just it's it's a really cool thing to have a culture that appreciates the the that eccentricity you know i think uh american culture appreciates uh commitment if nothing else <laughs> sincerity and yeah. commitment right uh and what is interesting to me about florence foster jenkins is she was the first to really show us that you could manufacture a musical career and be a recording artist professionally speaking if you had the resources just to do it. Now, how did she, you just did it. No one could stop you from doing it. No institution needed to uh, find you or approve of you. You didn't need to get booked in by any hall or, or organization or institution or ensemble or when auditions or any of the other, uh, you know, gatekeepers or clearing her or, or, you know, bars to entry, like talent or knowledge. And, you know, really there's no way to spin that recording other than, wow, that's, you know, I she's singing. We need to apologize probably to Mozart for that. But but she does show I think Mozart would have loved it. Exactly that. <laughs> he had a I, sense I of humor. He, I think, yeah, he might have uh died laughing. But I it, it shows that that's the spirit that you described, but also that it's possible, right? Uh the next one that we have to listen to is kind of on the other end of the spectrum. I think a hyper intelligent musician, a composer, but a guy who spent most of his career sitting in a room punching holes in paper. Conlon Nancaro. Now, a lot of classical musicians know uh, 
who Conlon Nancaro is, but he is a composer who became frustrated that what he wanted to do musically, there's a lot to talk about here, but what he wanted to do musically, you like conceptually in his music, I should say human beings really couldn't do. He, ne- he needed uh, almost a computer he could program, but he came too soon to be able to just exactly, do that. Because we're talking about 40s, 50s, 60s. So he was drawn to the closest thing you could program, which would be a player piano. Yes, you could give instructions to that machine to play things that human beings couldn't do. And that was the best tool he had. So that's what all of his output is. You don't publish anything because it's like with Frank... Zap, Zappa and Sinclavier, there's no, there's nothing to publish. You, you, you made the phenomenon, you poked the holes in the paper, you know, the, 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 literally the reel for the thing to play. So, okay. What does it sound like? Well, this is uh, from a, he did a bunch of studies for player piano, just called them studies like etudes, right? We call in a lot of different areas of musical study and composition, but this is uh, study number 21. So here's what you uh, will hear. This is an acceleration study where one voice progressively slows down while the other, a second voice, speeds up. So it's a phasing like Steve Reich does. Well, no, they don't start at the same speed. Right, but it, but it, it still is a type of phasing though, isn't it? T- uh, kind of, I guess. Yeah, one voice is speeding up progressively and the other is slowing down. Or is that like a double phasing? It's like a, yeah. the opposition. They phase thing, away right? from yeah. each other, yeah. So the study, this, this, it starts with a bass line playing a 12-tone row, meaning all you know, 12 notes chromatically non-tonal, uh, at about four notes per second, immediately followed by the other voice, upper, higher, playing 39 notes per second. Sounds bumping. <laughs> then the bass line starts to speed up, and the treble line slows down progressively. They reach the same tempo halfway through and it ends with one of the lines playing 120 notes uh per second and uh uh oh i don't remember what the other one was doing anyway so it goes through this thing so here this is on an actual player piano run off the roll uh it, it doesn't matter that's the process one is speeding up one is slowing down and he did it because people human beings couldn't do it but he wanted the music to exist so here we have a 1961 study for player player piano number 21 conlon nankaro to make stuff that sounded like that playing around with garage band it's nice to know that a composer was doing it in the early 60s uh and that was uh an acoustic piano i mean at times it sounds like you know it's a synthesizer or a computer or something it sounds uh not not acoustic sound source so so that was and and nankaro has since become because uh composers in the uh, 70s and 80s really discovered and started championing his music he does have some influence but uh, uh in his career that's 
what he did. He sat in a room and punched pieces of paper working in this conceptual space. And all, the, all the guys playing Beethoven were just like, what is this guy doing? Like, what is this? Uh, so, all right. Next on the list, Mrs. Miller. It's a bit like Florence. This is like Florence, just like Florence, in fact. There's a lot we could talk about. But this one is, uh, I think, what I like about it is it's moved from, it's not classical repertoire, and it's not someone who did concerts and recitals, had a, that much money. That's a lot of money. Now she knows what the kids are into. She knows what the kids are She's into it. Okay, so here's what I love about Mrs. Miller. You can listen to this whole album's on YouTube. We link to it on the, the playlist, or it's on iTunes. And we're going to play you her cover of A Hard Day's Night. And this is something that we would think of as just, you know, terrible, like the, the church lady singing karaoke. But this is the earliest version of the homemade music. And this woman clearly, to me, has a passion for these tunes she records, even though they're, well, you'll hear. Uh, but the passion is real. The enthusiasm is genuine. And so, you know, like I can't mock it because I can't, it's sincere, right? And that's that quality we mentioned. And this is where I think you first see it emerge in, in, in American popular music in this sense. And this was uh, 1966. It's been a hard day's night And I like a dog It's been a hard day's night should be sleeping like a log But when I get home to you I find the thing that you do Don't make me feel alright so when this was released, it actually reached the Billboard Hot 100 single charts in April 1966, uh, and it was probably this is probably the first of what we would call novelty recordings. In that respect, it's um it's like you know, William Hung when when he got a exactly. super popular album. Exactly. So would, would this have been the first time that would have happened? Yes, this is the first time that happened. And there's so a, so bad it's good. And just but what is what sells it? What makes it good? is the enthusiasm and sincerity. Because you can't fake that. You can't. There's a real enthusiasm for the repertoire and the, the, the singing, the act of singing. And woo! So, so this is where we first hear that. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a really interesting thing in, when you think about it in the, the American Idol context, because there was always that level of, are we laughing with them or at them, that I think makes some people a little uncomfortable with it. Definitely, and it yeah. does toe that line and it, it becomes an especially sensitive distinction when you're talking about an artist who may be uh, suffer from mental illness. Yeah. Uh, you know, because you absolutely don't want to fall on the side of any kind of mockery That's of what, I think what they're trying, yeah. you know, what a person's trying to make. And uh, someone like Jan Daniel Johnston, they're, the artists who are influenced by him had a real reverence for the music he made. They, they didn't see it as, as like this kind of weird weird kitschy thing they they actually saw it as as a legitimate work of art that that anyone would have made and probably that's 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 a good uh segue to our second section we shouldn't mention there there are three kind of chunks right in this playlist that we have for you for this episode the first one are the three that we listen to and th those are ones that are really kind of um in a way, culturally anomalous. They're unique and distinctive, right? But this next chunk is falls into what you described. Artists who are making work that is taken seriously by the, the people it influenced or who championed it, who believed that there was something real there, however uh, amateurly or inexpertly rendered. And, and people 
had attachments to it and would want to share it with their friends. They they would be like, <clears throat> they'd be like, hey, listen to this weird this weird thing I found. There's a there's a joy in the discovery and the sharing of these super unique hyper unique cultural artifacts. So the artist who was one of the earliest of this kind of outsider musician and uh, one of the earliest influential outsider musicians, I think, uh, is Wild Man Fisher. Uh, and we have uh, a, a track for you from 1968, Merry-Go-Round. But Larry Fisher, Larry Wildman Fisher, was a street performer uh, discovered by Frank Zappa, literally street performer, busking on the corner, doing his thing, like you can see in many cities right now today. Uh, and Zappa heard him and uh, uh, put him on a record label. He had founded uh, Bizarre Records. In 1969, it is dedicated to the, quote, musical and sociological material, sociological material that the important record companies would probably not allow you to hear. Uh, I would describe what Frank Zappa was doing as ethnomusicological work. He's doing field recordings. He's finding folk artists, right? So where do you find a folk artist in late 20th century United States? Busking on a street corner. <laughs> and Zappa has talked about this. He was aware enough to realize that he was being given a blank check by a studio to do whatever he wanted so he's like this is our moment to go find those weirdos and do something like do something with it and so they they saw that this was kind of their moment he talked about how this happened in the 60s and then again in the 90s with uh that's when we talked about a lot of our major label weirdos yeah and we should mention this episode connects directly to that episode previously on our podcast major label weirdos we talk about captain beefheart which was uh just next to Frank Zappa in making this really weird music and actually hitting a pretty high level of cultural ubiquity in that a lot of people heard about it, passed it around, and it's, it started to create a, a cult following. And generated capital to let uh, Zappa do something like found Bizarre Records, a label that could foster and actually get this some of this music out to people's ears start creating ecosystems exactly so okay i love this though the the recording uh, an evening with wild man fisher that this track merry-go-round we're gonna listen to is from frank zappa wrote the uh, liner notes for it's a 1968 album and he wrote please listen to this album several times before you decide whether or not you like it or what wild man fisher is all about he has something to say to you even though you might not want to hear it and I think that encapsulates what we're describing as well as any sort of uh, sentence that I've come across that folks have found value in some of this work because there is something valuable there, however difficult it is to hear it. or, or You just or, might need to open yourself up a little bit to, to hear what they're trying to say. Inexpertly rendered it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, so this is um, uh, uh, considered kind of the grandfather of uh, outsider music uh, merry-go-round by wild man fisher come on let's merry go merry go merry go round boo 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 merry go merry go merry go round boo 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 merry go merry go merry go round boo 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 everybody's going merry go round let us go, oh, oh, up and down. Come on, let's merry go, merry go, merry go round. Boop, 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 merry go, merry go, merry go round. Boop, 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 merry go, merry go.
I like this quote from Rolling Stones. They reviewed that this album at the time and said it captured the total being of one strange member of the human community. What I like about his music musically is that we were talking about this earlier today on a different in a different context, but as a musician, he is in 1968. He has his finger kind of on the pulse of what's going on, right? It's minimalistic. It's repetitive. It's folk influence. It's folk influence. But it is also socially and politically engaged, right? Merry-go-round there, that's that phrase. That's, there, that's social commentary. So he's telling us something about our world and that we need to pay attention. He's trying to tell us something, like, like literally, explicitly there. But the fact that the music is so circular and simple, and sticks like right even right now hearing that clip i'm going it's like a part of my brain is is cycling it now exactly and to me as a compositional decision that makes sense because you want it to stick deep you want it to land it's so important you have to strip it down and repeat it over and over again so it can bounce around someone's head long enough till it clicks so it sticks and so it clicks yeah exactly and uh, uh, I think Wildman Fisher really, like, 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 in in his craft, was able to find a way to distill that, and why I think he is, uh, you know, considered influential too. This next artist, legendary Stardust Cowboy, he was one of the pioneers of what you might call psychabilly, the weird kind of combination of rockabilly with this psychedelic overtone to it. The, probably the pioneer. Because his earliest collaborator in college, T-Bone Burnett, the giant of folk and bluegrass music and recording and revival in the 90s and aughts. So we have two tracks for you by the legend, by legendary Stardust Cowboy. Paralyzed, 1968. This was the first track, the one that he, he and T-Bone Burnett are the two performers on this track. This one had a lot of cultural penetration got a lot of listening and was received there was a whole spectrum of 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 how this was received we're at the point now where the the 60s are getting weird <laughs> the, got real weird yeah so this is 1968 and then the second one we have is 1989 because he continues working and recording standing in a trash can thinking about you and this is where you hear his style is much more clearly defined and articulated you hear what anthony mentioned the roots of uh, Psychobilly here in uh, uh, Legendary Stardust Cowboy Sound. So the first track here, 1968, Paralyzed, and we'll follow it with Standing in a Trash Can, Thinking About You. First one's 1968, second one's 1989. Legendary Stardust Cowboy. Standing 
So what I love about those two clips is they show a through line of compositional voice, but they also show development, stylistic development and kind of honing over a couple of decades. And uh, they also show that, you know, his songs, they never quite become songs. <laughs> they never write cohere, but it's all clearly intentional. He has his hands on this thing. This is how he wants it to be. He's got the energy to, to propel the work to something that's going to grab your attention, regardless if it all hangs together or not, because just the sheer force of it, you're just like, whoa, what is that guy doing? And I think also you hear, uh, to me, it's like punk music ran into uh, uh, cowboy music concert. Yeah. Uh -huh. You know, I mean, you really hear the roots of like psychobilly, that whole subgenre where there's a weird. There's punk a, there's a country. huge, a huge cross connect between the, the punkier bluegrass kind of, kind of thing. And yeah, this is definitely one of the first times I've heard that iteration of it this far back. Cause most people don't associate country with the kind of more punk thing, but it, it makes a lot of sense when you think about it, just cause they have that same, uh, individualistic streak to them, and that's that's punk in a nutshell. Well, not, yeah, individualistic. What we would call what uh, politically libertarian in the twenty first century. Yeah, era. yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap in those Venn, Venn diagram circles. <laughs> uh, I, I also think it's interesting that it's notable that T Bone Burnett is his college roommate collaborator back in the late sixties. Yeah, he had the right guy there to because make it how it happened. In, in the legit world, he becomes so influential, and also in reestablishing. American roots music as a practice, right? And also raising the level of uh, artistry and recording this music too, uh, and fostering the careers of the folks he, the singers he, you know, taking uh, it seriously as the art form that it is, as a great American art form, right? And that since it's, it doesn't surprise me that he was making this weirdo, you know, crazy outsider music when he was a a, a young adult, but also speaks to how somebody like legendary star, but the stardust cowboy can have influence beyond their audience. Uh, even today, like they had influence on a few individuals whose work is more broadly influential. That's usually where we see these outsider musicians, their influence manifest, how we and, see it manifest. And it's always interesting because you're seeing, one or a handful of people who take a chance on saying, yeah, I'm a, I'm a stake my reputation on getting this work out there because they see something in it. So you know that, oh, okay, there's, there's someone who's drawn to this and wanted to dedicate themselves to actually seeing it to be reified. And that gives people this question of, oh, like T-Bone Burnett did this? Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The next uh, artist we have for you is a band, a girl band. Late 1960s, The Shags. Pretty well known by this point, if you're at all into this kind of thing. If you, if you look for weird music, it's going to be one of the first things you'll run into. It's yeah, really hard to find for a long time, uh, nearly apocryphal. But this is the, you can read the backstory if you want to, easy to find online. I think there's like a movie in development or something. Uh, so a lot of people know about The Shags before long. But it was uh, sisters, two and then three sisters and maybe a fourth one eventually, but at least three, uh, two initially, then three. And their father, their grandmother, their father's mother had had these visions before she died. Exactly. Like, you know, the Jackson Five. Oh, no. I'm sorry. She went to a palm reader and the palm reader had the visions. It was what it was. And yeah, like two right. of them had come true. And the third one was that he would have daughters and that they would be a famous music act, recording act. And so, the gypsy woman said it would come true. So when the guy had a couple of daughters, he spent a lot of money. This is the 1960s, late 60s, and built a recording studio at home and put his 
at first two daughters and then three daughters in there with instruments, guitar and drum and bass and microphones and recording equipment, but didn't teach them how to play. I mean, they took lessons uh, apparently for some time, but they learned how to play the individual instrument kind of, but clearly didn't learn like theory or reading notation or rhythm or meter or, you know, how it all works. Put your hands here (laughs) and then strum. Okay, so why listen to this inept, weird music? The Shags, to me, we have two of tracks. Their album was called Philosophy of the World, and we have two tracks, a title track, Philosophy of the World, and then which I think actually has something to say. I think the girls, they're teenagers, and they actually are kind of passionately trying to put a little social message out there. And then the second one is My Pal Foot Foot, which is just a love note, a love song to their cat, who was named Foot Foot. Uh, and so it's, I think we have this uh, real passionate, aware political title track, and then this little simple, uh, you know, ode to my cat, my pal Foot Foot, I wanted to kind of put back to back. But here's why I find the Shags interesting it's the best almost music I've ever heard. It's, it's, it gets so close to being music. Yes. It's, it's uncanny. If you Valley, listen right? just to the guitar part. It makes sense. It's not like well played, but it makes sense. If you listen to the drum part, it stutters and stops and starts, but there's a a sense there, a feel there. Try and try and bob your head to it. The the melody, there's a tune, but none of it <laughs> goes right. So this is uh philosophy of the world, uh the shags. The rich people want what the poor people's got And the poor people want what the rich people's got And the skinny people want what the fat people's got And the fat people want what the skinny people's got You can never please anybody in this world I agree with them. You never can be somebody in this world because the world more so now than in 1969 is designed to make you want what you aren't and want what you don't have and keep you in that state of want. So quite, that's what I'm quite mean. ahead of their time. There's like a sincerity there. There's a savvy about the world they live in. There's a tune and you get that little cadence where it all comes together for the one moment and the bomb, bomb, bomb. You get the perfect authentic cadence there and then it all kind of comes apart again. It's another one that Frank Zappa has his fingerprints on. He had Dr. Demento play this on his radio show and that was probably one of the first times this was brought to I, the awareness of people. I, I think likely we didn't do our homework on this point, but Dr. Domino's radio show may have been the point of cultural entry for a lot of this stuff because he kind of, uh, uh, this was a mainstay for him, and that was a nationally syndicated radio show. I listened to that as a kid in the early 80s. Uh, and then this next one is still the Shags, My Pal Foot Foot, and the kind of bare, almost their nature, their music is a little more evident in the down-tempo tune about their cat, uh, My Pal Foot Foot. My pal's name is Footfoot. I never find him home. I go to his house, knock at his door. People come out and say, Footfoot, don't live here no more. My pal Footfoot, Footfoot, always likes to roam. My pal Footfoot, Footfoot, now he has no home. 
There's a bit of an argument about who said they were better than the Beatles. Some say it was Frank Zappa, others say Lester Bangs, but that was one of their claims to fame is someone said, hey, the Shags, they're they're better than the Beatles, actually. Like, in my personal opinion, I think they're better than the Beatles. <laughs> the next artist we have for you is Shuby Taylor, the self-styled human horn. This is for me of where you get the overlap of a, a sort of lack of self-awareness, total lack of self-awareness of a Florence Foster Jenkins uh, with uh, a sincere, if sort of inept expression of musical ideas uh, that runs through all of these outsider artists. Shuby Taylor clearly really believes in the musical ideas he has and that he adds to the musicians he performs with. And he really believes that he is the human horn, that he can use his body to make all these different sounds. He is the instrument. He is the instrument. And so let's play for you. Uh, I'd say it's a singular and eccentric scat singing style is what we did describe him. This is uh, Stout Hearted Men, uh, Shuby Taylor from uh, 1972. We shoo so saw, shoo so spaw, shoo boo plaw, do do raw, do do saw, do do raw, sooner we da, sooner do cleaver. We da da shraw, la pa saw, da da raw, la da shree, lo poo pa, da do saw, sooner we da, sooner do plaw, ray, sha da ha, sha pa graw, sa pa saw, sha pa raw, sa pa da, sha pa ha, sooner do that, baby, you do baby. I like how much intention there is behind each specific phrase he chooses. It's like these are these exact words I want. It's almost like you wrote them down. Like I want these ones. Oh, for and each of these, each of these sounds. And this clearly, is the one. his there is a vivid and active musical imagination driving the sounds he's making. He's not just making sounds. You know, he he. These are real musical. He's working ideas. on a couple he, levels, exactly. And that it is so the combination of sort of clumsiness and uh, guilelessness and confidence, unearned confidence is really this it's this unique mixture that makes this uh him more than maybe anybody else on this episode shuby taylor he's really selling it or or our next artist actually el touchy (laughs) no i'm sorry that's the track i'm sorry louis louis is the artist el touchy it's the track our next artist you talk about unearned self-confidence oh man louis louis he invents this dance called El Touchy in this track. Uh, it's around 1980, but this guy plays all the instruments, including guitars, drums, horns, synth, and puts it all together, writes the liner notes, and is just like, like kind of, I mean, manic and narcissistic almost, but it results in... A bit like the cha-cha slide almost. <laughs> we just got to play El Touchy. 
Here, this is the dances. Sweeping the nation. Hi, my name is Louis Louis, and I'm here to tell you about a new dance called the Touchy. It is a wonderful idea for people to get together and touch. You can dance now touching hand to hand, foot to foot, uh, shoulder to shoulder, nose to nose, ear to ear, or foot to nose, or what have you. I made this recording all by myself. I play every instrument that you will hear, including harps, bells, scratchers, moog synthesizers, and what have you. The first thing I have to tell you is this. A touchy, to be a touchy, must have a wild trumpet introduction. One thing I have to say about every artist on this episode, every artist falls under this label, is respect. Because they made the thing and they put it out there, right? It's easy to sit on the sidelines. always easier to be a critic than it is to be a doer. In the arena. And especially with music and especially up through the late 90s, through the whole era that we're going to cover in the rest of the examples, it was really difficult to make music in a studio, to get access to the tools and the space and et cetera. And to get it literally made into a thing, pressed into discs of you know albums or or or, or, or cassettes duplicated or whatever, uh, uh, to find an audience, to get any kind of distribution, all that stuff, different after in in this century than in the previous century. But uh, uh, these artists really, so no matter what I think of the product, first of all, right, respect for doing it for Louis Louis. <laughs> Look, man, that's he made all of that. He played all those parts. He made it all. And look, he made a thing. <laughs> he made the thing out you of that. Always have thing. that thing. Exactly. Uh, that's the day. El Touchy, sweeping the nation. Uh, I should mention. Be sure to highlight the uh, highlight. If you, if you, if you, I'm sorry, the anthology. If you are really turned on by this whole dimension of musical culture that we're talking about in this episode, songs in the key of Z. The Curious Universe of Outsider Music is the starting point, and it may probably the ending point, the whole journey for a lot of this. Uh, this is the uh, text by Erwin um, uh, Chusett, and there are also three uh, anthology albums, uh, collections, volume one, two, and three, uh, that accompany the text and uh, highlight a lot of these uh, artists and, and provide a lot of these recordings. First published in 2000. So the song's in the key of Z. So be sure to check that out. Next artist, Gary Wilson. Tell us about Gary Wilson. I ask you to tell us about him because Anthony, of course, is our our guide on the history of punk. And while the the flowering of what we think of as, you know, the mainstream punk culture, mainstream, ha, the, uh, you know, the, the core of what punk is in the late 70s, it's happening in New York at CBGB's. 
couple hundred miles away in the thriving metropolis of Endicott, New York. You can imagine. In his literal parents' basement. Being around that, it would have been very inspiring. Like, you're, you're around one of the cultural epicenters with this brand new thing happening. So I would imagine there would have been a lot of people with the means or not who would have been like, man, I want to get in on this. And he got to play, record in a studio that had Patti Smith and Bob Dylan, Rolling Stones, and R.E.M. played in. So he eventually got to a pretty cool, cool spot. But before he did. But before he did. He made a total album in his parents' basement in 1977. You think you really know me. And I think this is fascinating to me because you hear it's the earliest uh, artifact I've discovered of recorded music of what we would call synth pop, what became synth pop, which, uh, of course, was huge in the 80s, especially after 83. Yamaha releases a DX7 and boom, we have synth pop. But um, uh, especially now in the last decade with uh, K-pop and J-pop, other places in the world or, or in doing their iterations of what I think we would call would call that and this this guy Gary Wilson and like you said because he eventually having ended up having quite a career is really influential as an early experimental pop uh, electronic musician. Yeah, a couple of these artists because they were so unique the once people kind of got hip to them it may have happened later in life but some of them actually got to be given the chance to really make something which is cool that people recognized them and said hey let's Let's keep getting make, making more stuff with this guy. <laughs> so we got two tracks off this uh, beginning homemade uh, work. Uh, you think you know me. The first track is 6.4 equals make out. So that's one side of this uh, proto-musical voice as it emerges. And the other track, uh, I think, that shows kind of a different side of what he was doing more with, uh, I don't know what you would call like uh, pastiche work or something, with electronics, assembling things, seeing that we see flowering and uh, like plunder phonics and that kind of stuff that we've talked about before on other episodes. Right, like kind of a, at that time it would have been kind of like a new wave thing, right? It's even ahead of that. This is 1977. Right. So it would, yeah. what would have This is when disco, yeah, is just yeah. emerging. I mean, just the very beginnings of electronic dance music and club music and what we would think of as pop music. Uh-huh. You know, he's making these sounds literally in his parents' basement. This is, uh, but this is kind of the other facet, I think, to the voice that's on that album. You think you really know me. Uh, Loneliness is, is the second track from Gary Wilson. Thank <laughs> you. 
that one, uh, I think that was contemporaneous to uh, Suicide was another band. Uh, both of them put out their album in 1977, and it's a much darker, more avant-garde take on on using synths. And it, those kind of you know split off in different ways. You have the really cheery 80s synths that eventually came out of that. But um, that was much. There's a lot more tonal palette that they were playing with back then. Sounds like he had some wild live shows too. I was I was reading this. It was saying that they had like cellophane, fake blood, uh, duct tape, flour, bed sheets, and milk. It sounds a little bit like what the the butthole surfers ended up ended up doing a little bit later actually so this has been like a that scene back to the futures uh you're you guys aren't ready for this but your kids are gonna love it <laughs> so jandek is the artist that i know a fair amount about going going into this because he had a first off a documentary uh about him jandek on corewood that you should anyone should check out if they're interested in just kind of weird niche musician okay. stories. So yeah, you back up a little bit though. Yeah. This is a uniquely American framing, right? Uh-huh. Jandek exists first as the company. Yeah. As a company with Corewood with no name. Industry. That's yeah. what you said uh-huh. Corewood, Corewood Industries. Exactly. Yeah. And this company uh-huh. has a musical project. Right. Called. Called Jandek. Jandek. So yes. Jandek's not a person's stage name it's the project of this company exactly yes that's uh-huh. okay how very and that's American. how people would be receiving this this product this this commodity almost and since 1978 when they and, started yeah and like an album a year and they, they just kept coming no one knew why no one knew who they're over a hundred albums and dvds released yeah and since so, 1978 so you had a, a handful of people who had gotten in touch with them did like some small interviews and um, before we talk about more, you should we should listen to this and give people some context because it's okay. It's, so um, it's not really Sunday morning wake up music. This <laughs> is from the initial 1978 yeah, so release. The first thing the world would have heard from him. They from them. Yeah, from from it, I guess. From it, yeah. yeah it's it's a project. From it's the, a project. From the it's corporation not even, <laughs> doesn't claim to be a collective of people or a person. Right. Yeah. Neither. It is a project of this. Clearly, there's a person or people somewhere, yeah. uh, but uh, okay. So this is from the uh, original, uh, the first rather, 1978 uh, uh, release. They told me I was a fool. my phase of discovering new music and new movies when when i was in high school i loved really weird stuff and i loved kind of searching out what was going to be the weirdest the, the darkest the the most you know anti kind of mainstream and when i got to jandek i 
felt a bit like I'd hit the final frontier. <laughs> I was like, where do you go past this if you're trying to make less accessible music? <laughs> While still having like the, f- the shape of music. I think that you'd have to go to what we talked about earlier today as a future episode, the avant-garde of various yeah. styles yeah. and subgenres and things. sound entirely. And where, or where it's meta or conceptual or still, self-referential. Like or song so, you know. <laughs> with like a chord well it's so highly heavily informed by minimalistic thought to me and processes all of this like it's saturated by the late 70s the culture just artistically is thinking in these terms and it's not just like minimalism per se as a style or a movement artistically it's like the culture mass uh like production and you know uh mass communication and uh processes are evident and all around us and you know and so well people would say that he didn't tune his guitar and he would say no i tuned my guitar it's like he it it sounds the way he wants it to sound and most people think it was just kind of like some people think it's just kind of nonsense well like the okay so the same the 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 first uh, album the the title album's ready for the house but the track that we uh just listened to they told me i was a fool if you instead of a guitar, right, and clearly the guitar is recorded to be really live and super resonant, so that it's got a timbre that it can't have. You want to feel like you're in, in the room with yeah, him, or in the guitar, yeah, like sitting right. inside his guitar almost, right? Um, and and some other things are clearly done to the sound of the guitar in the recording of it. But imagine that you know Trent Reznor made that recording in '02, and it was all um, you know computer sounds instead of guitar sounds, making those same jagged dissonances uh-huh. around that vocal delivery the same vocal delivery which to me uh is is i hear it in like nine inch nails but i also hear it in radiohead i also hear it in all these 90s bands and vocalists uh um and i think people would go oh that's just like experimental avant rock from the early aughts or something yeah that's I, really know. interesting that's it makes sense yeah which which means he was just we weren't ready for him, right? It's the it's the Varez quote. It's not that you're ahead of your own time. It's that everybody else is behind your time. It's that you're of your time if you're a connected artist. And it is interesting when you look at the list of artists who have said that they're influenced by him and cite him as an influence. You have Sonic Youth, Bill Callahan, Mike Watt, uh, the Mountain Goats, Ben Gibbard of Death Cab, uh, Bright Eyes, Calvin Johnson and and Pearl Jam, so that's it's a pretty substantial list of of artists to go to the mat for him. Definitely. Uh, so the next artist we have is uh, an artist who was one of the ones we mentioned uh, in the introduction is someone who struggled with uh, mental illness. Daniel Johnston. Uh, there's a great documentary, The Devil and Daniel Johnston, about this artist, but uh, his first uh, self. Released recording, uh, 1983, Hi, How Are You, uh, is how people first uh, got introduced to his music and things. But um, Kurt Cobain mentioned him as a big influence. A lot of people discovered him through that avenue. And I wonder, you know, you have to wonder what the resonance there was. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. So let's listen and then, then we can talk about it a little bit. This is uh, Daniel Johnston. The, the track that we wanted to share a clip of is uh, called Walking the Cow. Uh, this is Night from High, How Are You? This is uh, 1983. This is the pig. Do you hear the frog? 
hear his influence in a lot of the early 2000s indie bands like indie pop kind of twee bands of that same kind of really stripped down sound of almost you know childlike but in the in the sense of it's this like sense of discovery and wonder that goes along with the really childlike nature of it of trying to get people back into that mindset childlike but not childish yeah 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 and trying to get that and also the well, guileless is like I said before, and and innocence, but intensity of an immediacy, of, an urgency of expression, emotive expression, and in, in even that recording, the way he's just banging on that little keyboard, bang, 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 you know, like like the 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 artistic impulse and the the expression so exceeds the tools available, both you know his little instrument and little home rig and and the skill level and all that. But it's there. You can get it. And like Kurt Cobain, you know, very um, uh, empathetic and and, uh, obviously a very sensitive and thoughtful listener got it right away. So I can get why why he would cite that as an influence, why that would resonate with him. And like you said, obvious stylistic connections, too, to starting about a decade later. Next, we have The Frogs, another connection to uh, supporting Anthony's thesis about the influence and fundamental nature of punk. Uh, if you listen to last week's episode, you heard him talk through this uh, era, through the 80s and into the 90s. Homestead Records recorded The Frogs, started as a punk label, and then leveraged that to nurture some outsider musicians. Yeah, I think you see a decent amount of kind of crossover in the sense that people would have at least more of an outlet now because they could see people around them making records. So it slowly started to get to the point where these other kind of outsiders can be like, oh, like our friends are just booking studio time. You, you can do that. And it made it a lot more acceptable to just make a band and it just being a thing that was almost in, in the culture. Yeah, and the Frogs are uh, siblings, Jimmy and Dennis uh, uh, Flemion, F-L-E-M-I-O-N. I've never heard their name uh, said, so I apologize if I mispronounce it. But uh, this whole album, It's Only Right and Natural, It's Only Right and Natural, uh, is really crude home recordings, but it's a concept album from 1989, and one of the first, uh, I think at least in American popular culture, like openly, aggressively gay albums it really is is satirical and vicious taking jabs at socially conservative attitudes about homosexuality and kind of in ways that probably wouldn't fly today that would be seen as 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 over the line even uh, yeah there was there to was those sympathetic to the message yeah there's elements of that with um who's do they they didn't make it an overt part of their music but it was just something that everyone knew that if you were like at a husker do 
show or you're into that kind of stuff like you were you were cool with that because they right. were they were fairly openly gay right but it wasn't like in this sense where they worked it into their music as part of like yeah this message. is uh you know protest political music as much as uh-huh. as anything but yeah. uh uh you know you hear from the sound it's homemade it's outsider uh but this is uh a little bit of frogs this track is i don't care if you disrespect me just so you love me uh 1988 released 1989 That was a good drum break I feel like making love to all the men tonight Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful night Making love to every guy inside Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful They follow a similar pattern to others who were discovered like by Frank Zappa or someone like that. For these guys, it was Steve Albini, who was one of the most legit producers for this bubbling up 80s punk scene. So once they got in touch with him, they actually were able to get a decent amount of exposure. They ended up meeting Kurt Cobain and got involved in the scene. So good for them. And I get, uh, you know, despite how the album has has sort of aged, I get why there's such a hard edge to it and why it is so blunt. Because '89, you're still in the grips of the AIDS epidemic and a lot of sort of public denial. Oh yeah, and and you're you know and and stigmatization and you know. Uh, so I I having lived through that as a a kid, I get I get where they're coming from. I get where they're coming from, uh, generally and specifically in that year and time. Uh, but uh, yeah, the sound, it's interesting to me for some of these artists how, uh, and this, I thought this too when we listened to uh, uh, Gary Wilson and Jandek, that they don't sound so weird and peculiar anymore. When you get a few decades out, and if they they were influential, if they were ahead of the curve, uh-huh. or the, they were on the curve, and the rest of us are just catching they slowly up, get subsumed into the, they, the sound, the metal. Yeah, it's like the big example. I would say classical music is whole the planets, right? It sounds like a stereotype pop uh-huh, classical yeah. piece because he wrote that piece in 1926. Nobody knew what space sounded like. I but some people, the Seinfeld effect you know, is what they would call that now. Yeah. yeah. After he wrote that piece, that's now, that's what space sounds like. And uh-huh. So it's a victim of its own success, right? Um, but listening to the frogs and especially doing the episode that we just did for last week, the history of punk part three, like that sound is so emblematic of its time. Uh-huh. It doesn't sound outside the mainstream at all. It evokes the time better than, a lot of other things you could pick. I and think. that's what's interesting about these scenes is what we talked about last week. That's really, that's like the tip of the top band from each of those scenes that would have had a set of bands below them that were pretty good. And then a whole nother tier below them that were all filling in and opening. So there's, there's so many bands like lost in this mess of, of history that went throughout <laughs> these last couple decades. And it's, funny to kind of look at some of these these artifacts that have survived 
and how to filter and sort and make sense of all these artifacts because as a medium in music, we are still at the end of the first phase of an era, I guess, when that was, uh, uh, it's unprecedented in the history of the medium, in human history, to have actual musical artifacts, the, the, the recordings of the sound itself. Yeah, I find it, that idea really interesting because no one's in charge of archiving it all. I, I can only imagine so many of these really, really obscure local punk bands, some of which were made really fantastic stuff that I just don't know. I could give you a bunch of CDs just sitting in someone's house. Like, <laughs> I, Look, that's like uh, all of the music, all of human beings made until just a few hundred years ago when yeah. we, we developed some notation. You know, uh, it is it is it is a temporal and uh, abstract and ephemeral medium. Uh, but that's kind of right. That's part of its beauty and fascination. Um, so that was the frogs, the frogs. Uh, Wesley Willis is our next artist. Now, he has achieved uh, a fair bit of notoriety uh, culturally, not just in terms of musical uh, and commercial uh visibility but also other artists comedians and things a sheer force of personality yeah and and distinctiveness and audacity of creative <laughs> voice i don't know <laughs> how do we describe now okay so wesley is another of our uh, artists who does struggle with uh mental illness i believe in his case it is schizophrenia yes um and it does affect the way that he, uh, you know, perceives the world and uh, the kind of energy that's in his music uh, and the things that he wants to talk about. But uh, speaking of connections to punk and 80s punk and uh, indie uh, recording labels and so forth, the uh, Rabble Rouser and the Dead Kennedys, uh, Jello Biafra, his alternative uh, tentacles label, uh, put out albums by Dot Wiggin, one of the Wiggin sisters from the Shags, but also uh, uh, put out uh, Willis's work. So we have his best-known track, I think, from 1995. Do you have anything to say about this before we play Rock and Roll McDonald's? I think the track speaks for itself. All right, Wesley Willis, Rock and Roll McDonald's. McDonald's is a place to rock. It is a restaurant where they buy food to eat. It is a good place to listen to the music. People flock here to get down to the rock music. Rock and roll McDonald's. Rock and roll McDonald's. Rock and roll McDonald's. Rock and roll McDonald's. McDonald's will make you fat. They serve Big Macs. They serve Quarter Pounders. They will put pounds on you. Rock and roll McDonald's. Rock and roll McDonald's. Rock and roll McDonald's. Rock and roll McDonald's. Yeah, there's, there's another one of those where people, they hear it and they just almost can't believe that it, that, <laughs> that it exists and that someone made it and they made it like that and recorded it and it's out there and you're like, oh. Okay. Well, and it's kind of the musical equivalent of a YouTube video, you know, uh, where like, like, what is it? Hide your wives, hide your kids. <laughs> They'd be raping yeah. out here. Like where someone says something and it's just so, as a person, they're so distinctive. Their presentation, their 
dialect, their whatever. Uh, and I think in his music, uh, Wesley Willis is so forthright and clearly defined and distinctive that like, you don't even think is this good or bad. You just think it just is what it, what? Wow. Cry, uh, shine on you crazy diamonds. All I got to say about that. Uh, I, I think, uh, it's wonderful that he shares <laughs> music with it. I love that track. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we got two more for you. Uh, just quick looks as we come in, skid into the late 90s here, 1997, 1998. We have a, uh, a poet uh, who has been recording for decades, really, but uh, musicians have picked up his spoken word recordings, which he often does with um, sound effects and noise accompaniment and things, and have added electronic musicians, DJs, things like that, have added uh, tracks to his 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 uh, spoken word performances this is bingo gazingo so bingo was kind of a new york uh fixture he would introduce bands at cbgb's things like that uh uh born in 1924 uh, stayed obscure really throughout his life and like you mentioned died on new year's day 2010 at 85 years old on the way to perform yeah at the bowery poetry clubs hit by a cab and that's uh, like he he would have lived through the beats, through Bob Dylan, through all of that, through all of it, and performed <laughs> and like you know, uh, he every Monday night six p.m. Bowery Poetry Club in New York City he performed, um, and so this is a, a poem of his called "Up Your Jurassic Park," and it was uh, accompanied by electronic music performance artists, d- artists uh, improvised musical accompaniment. Sorry, WFMU DJs. Stevie Moore, Bob Brainin, and a few other guys. Uh, so this is this is uh, Bingo Gazingo, Up Your Jurassic Park, He was pretty electric live, love his poetry or hate him. The thing uh, for me about Bingo Gazingo is that he embodies, I mean, it's in his work, the passion and the outsider artist, but they are, I mean, I, you know, we don't want to digress into notions of authenticity or whatever, but they are pure artists, naive artists also, I think, in the sense that, in spite of kind of my closing thought before you give us our our last artist here from 1998. Uh, uh, they are pure artists in the sense that, you know, I think about Bingo Gazingo, 85 years old, on his way to his regular Monday night gig, uh, reciting his poetry, which he has done for decades, mostly in obscurity, but it doesn't matter 
because he loves creating and performing his poetry because he has something to say. He has something to share. And that's why he's up in front of people. And that's why every artist on this episode, including the one that we're going to close with, made and share and put out there what they did is because they have something to say that they think is worth sharing, that they think we will benefit from experiencing in some way. And even when I don't like it, I find that I appreciate a great deal that sincerity. And that to me is authenticity, no matter how you do it. When you're sincere in your effort as an artist, whether it's to a stadium full of people or to the three people who showed up to your Monday night show at the club, you know? Our last artist is a Swedish Elvis impersonator, Eilert Pillarm. Impersonator? I think he kind of, he's like the second Elvis, right? What, he is. What I like about this is it, it closes the loop really with uh, Florence and with Miss. Mrs. Miller. Mrs. Miller, where. Florence Foster Jenkins it, and Mrs. Miller. It really Miller. brings it back, I think, even further to our tradition of simple folk songs that people could sing and and everyone just making music as a part of your culture because they didn't have to create anything. They just had these songs that they loved and said, I'm going to sing this song that I love. And the, their songs, they've, they're simple. They're very straightforward, mm-hmm. you know, technically in their composition. And, and everyone they know will also know them. And can join in yeah. and enjoy it right away. Exactly. So pop, uh, rock and roll recordings have have become that for a lot of the world. Yeah, it becomes the connective tissue. Exactly, like music has always been, just on a a much larger scale. So we have our Swedish. He's not not an impersonator. The second Elvis is what he calls himself, right? Yeah. Eilert Pillar. The second coming. I think think he really, he, he believes in his recordings that he is not like imitating or doing versions of Elvis, but he is like channeling the essential Elvis. Yeah, man. And so well, I guess there's, there's a little Elvis in all of us. Is is there is is there a more iconic Elvis recording, identifiably Elvis recording than Jailhouse Rock? Probably not. No, let's uh This is the second Elvis. Eilert Pillarm singing Jailhouse Rock. If hearing that clip makes you want to immediately <laughs> click the YouTube link or uh, go to you know your music streaming service and uh, listen to Eilert Pillarm, uh, this track is on Songs in the Key of Z, the Volume 1 compilation we mentioned, P-I-L-A-R-M. If, if you're thinking, I have to hear more of this. All of this stuff, there's so much more of it. Then we have done our job. <laughs> yeah, if, if you love this, there's a whole world for you to explore now. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. As always, you can find us online at loosefilter.com. And if you like what you hear, want to explore further, each of the uh, episode posts there has a playlist with links to the tracks that we discuss. You can explore the artist's and their work further. You can also find us at soundcloud.com slash loosefilter, and uh, you can subscribe to the podcast to any of your favorite 
subscription services that offer RSS subscription. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Loosefilter at gmail.com. And we will see you next week. Shifting as I do the books to heaven's sake. No one looking on chance may break. Books trying to shift and I said nicks nicks. I want to stick around a while to get my kicks. Let's write.